Welcome to the Divorced and Done podcast. I'm Rob Woodward, joined by my friend and colleague, Darren Schmidt. We're divorce lawyers focused on giving you the information necessary to move through the divorce process quickly and efficiently to maximize benefit to you and your family without financially or emotionally bankrupting yourselves. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not legal advice or legal opinion of any kind. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to Divorced and Done. Today, we're taking more of your questions. Thank you so much for sending them in. Darren and I have had a great response through social media and a great response to our podcast. So thank you as we can tackle more of these questions uh, on this beautiful sunny afternoon. Darren Schmidt, how are you doing? Rob, I'm good, but you, you, you omitted something at the start. You didn't mention your donuts. Today has been a great day, yeah. So Darren and I were chatting before we started talking today, and uh, some listeners may be aware of the uh, Tim Ferriss Four Hour Body Diet, and I'm I'm giving it a shot. Basically, it's very low carb throughout the week, and on Sunday you can eat whatever you want. And uh, today I fulfilled a childhood dream, and I actually um, made donuts. And uh, my grandmother used to say to me all the time when I was little that historically she made donuts. And I was sort of would always say to her, uh, Grandma, much like doing a push-up, making a donut is physically impossible. That's why we go to the store to do these things. But indeed, in this last week, I have both done a push-up and made a donut. Uh, so it can be done. Uh, very tasty. You sent me a picture of the two plates of donuts, and my first question was, "Did you <laughs> ate all of that?" Uh, no, I made about I made about eighty donuts, eighty cake donuts, uh, and and as any listeners familiar with the uh, Four Hour Body may know, you're entitled to eat whatever you want on Sundays. Um, but as a result of doing that, of course, I did not eat all the donuts. I ended up packing most of them up and uh, taking them to some family and neighbors. Uh, but it was more just the thrill of making them and going, well, look at these two ridiculous platters of donuts that I, I have created. Wouldn't it be nice if we could all live the donut lifestyle like you? And <laughs> I'm thinking of, uh, the song, wouldn't it be nice? I can't believe you loop that back into music theory. You just, you just jump right off this donut. You know what, Darren, you want to eat a donut? Eat a donut. They're good yeah, for yeah. you. I look, look, I eat donuts. I love donuts. I, I don't, if I've you never didn't, made we'd them. have a problem. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't be friends anymore. That'd be it. So, um, I, well, initially I was thinking, what's a question? What's a song with a question in the title? Because we're doing listener questions. And the, the song that came to mind was, Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys. It's from their 1966 album, Pet Sounds. Pet Sounds, for any sort of music aficionado, uh, is sort of the Beach Boys' most regarded album. It didn't initially get a lot of um, positive feedback. I think people were sort of confused by it in the era, uh, coming out in the late 60s. Um, Brian Wilson was the architect of a lot of the songs on the album. Uh, Wouldn't It Be Nice was the first song on the album. And again, that album didn't get a lot of uh, positive reaction. I think it only went up to number 10 
or excuse me, number eight on the Billboard Hot 100 in the U.S. And so, but it's really come to be known in later years as an amazing album. Many music critics would put it easily within the top 100 albums ever produced. Uh, and even Sir uh, Sir McCarthy uh, from the Beatles has said uh, it is standard listening for anyone that wants to understand music of the 20th century. So um, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice indeed? And it will be nice to answer some listener questions today, which is what we're doing. So if you want to send your questions in to us, you can... Um, you can do so, lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com, and we'll uh, try our best to get to them. Of course, as we transition from our podcast to the listener questions, you get the standard sound, the ad free, royalty free cowbell, which I'm about to uh, treat you to right now. All right. That's fantastic. One day we will have the privilege or fantastic ability to take clips of the songs that you talk about them and use them as our transition music, but not yet. <laughs> that would sort of, if you think about it, it may spoil the reference, but maybe our listeners think this is so dumb that Darren does these weird musical references at the start of every episode, but, uh, uh yeah. And they can be like, Oh, I hate this song too. Like, great. M more, <laughs> more like sixties and seventies. What does Darren listen to? I don't, I don't know. I, I would be shocked if any of the musical references I've made to date, truly offended someone as some some song or some artist or some genre that was like oh i can't stand this who can't stand the beach boys they're fine You'd be, they're fine but no like in terms of hate like i hate the beach boys oh i really? don't mean affirmative hate just like like really we're here to talk about divorce and uh and, and here we go um or let's talk about the top 10 from 1958 yeah all right um, I guess on that point, I'll just transition to listener questions. So, <laughs> sorry, not not to not to take the wind out of your sails. That's fine. I very low wind anyway uh, for oh, me. But oh. uh, I okay. First question: You need a donut. I've been following Darren on TikTok for some time now. Thanks for those, and thank well, thank you for watching those. Um, my question is for child support. If the parent receiving the child support has a good job and a career and decide they want to change jobs to a lower paying job to gain more child support and takes the payor back to court is this something that can be done and i it's not said in the question but clearly what's happening here is there's a shared parenting arrangement because otherwise we don't care what the parent receiving support makes because we're all, in that case, if we had a primary parenting arrangement, then we'd only care about what the parent paying support was making as income. But they must have a shared parenting arrangement. And one of the parents has decided that they want to change jobs and that has resulted in a reduction in income. And the question is basically, is that something that they can do? So, uh, Rob, what are your thoughts? This is an interesting question. It is highly contextual whether a court will intervene and do something because it really depends on what sort of job change the other parent did. If they are still in the same industry uh, and there's been, for example, a marked downturn in Alberta, our oil and gas industry uh, has had a real downturn. So we've seen a lot of job loss, a lot of change there. Uh, a court may or may not intervene in that sort of situation. If it's a situation where someone said, I'm intentionally 
trying to change my child support obligation, so I'm going to take a much lower paying job. A court sees through that. Courts know that people do this, and they can actually impute somebody income, as we've addressed in our child support episode, and peg them at a higher income. In this situation, the listener doesn't really give any uh, information about what the nature of the job change was or the change in the nature of income. So we can't really speculate around those pieces. And I think that would be important to better address this question. Um, my chief concern is always if someone's a little bit perhaps underemployed or changed, taken a small pay cut and moving from one potentially one career to another, I'm less concerned about it. It's those big changes where someone said, and the classic example is dad is working, making over a hundred grand a year, gets divorced and says, I don't want to pay for my children. I'm not paying anyone anything. I'm going to go work at McDonald's. And of course that is not an acceptable change or someone becomes a minimum wage worker uh, where a court would step in. But in this situation, I think we'd need more information to understand whether that job change was reasonable or not. The reduction in income should be significant if you're going to poke the bear. Otherwise, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, in my view, to go back to court and have a big fight over it. If their income was at $60,000 and they've taken a new job and it's now $55,000, my general view on that would be who cares. Yep. Um, it, the scenario you've just described, the $100,000 a year earnings to minimum wage earnings, um, yeah, that's probably worth pursuing and having at minimum a discussion with them about why that change came about and other things before just rushing off to court. But if it's not a significant reduction in income and they made that career change for a, a reason unrelated to the child support itself, which I would hope would be the case, like I just wanted a change in scenery or I have a better opportunity here, long-term horizon, um, or I'm getting out of a toxic workplace or things like that. Th those are all fair, fair things to do on that parent's part. So anyway, uh, yes, highly contextual. Let's go to question two. Uh, listener says um, that uh, his ex lied under oath in a court proceeding and that they had a court hearing of some sort. Not sure whether it was a trial or an interim hearing. Uh, and, sh and he says that she... Um, made the judge believe she was in military. It was, it was in the military or had a job in the military. And, uh, by making that allegation, this, um, listener believes the judge, uh, gave his ex more parenting time with their child. Um, but he says, I found out that she was dismissed from the military, uh, and continues to represent herself as being in active duty. Um, and he he believes she is using the status so she can move to another state. This listener is from the U.S., it appears. Um, so a couple things going on. She may have misled the court respecting her employment status as being in the military. And um, he is suspicious that she may be using the status in order to try and relocate with their child. So, uh, Rob, what are your thoughts? It would be important for the listener, uh, as they say, they believe that her military status was the reason for the judgment for the judge giving her more parenting time. I would seek to receive a transcript of the reasons, if they're available, or a recording of the reasons, to understand exactly the decision that the judge made and why, why your ex was granted more parenting time. And if 
it was the grant of more parenting time was solely premised on your ex being in the military and you know she is lying about that it may be worth bringing that back if you have some evidence or can get some evidence from the military whether she's in the forces or whether she's been discharged or if she was ever in the forces at all, if that really is a material issue. With respect to mobility, because the listener suggests he fears that this may be coming down the pipe and that she's going to rely on this military service issue uh, to be able to move with their child, I would recommend, number one, find out about the military issue, but number two, and this obviously is in the U.S., but... If whatever state the listener is in treats mobility similarly to the way that we treat it in Canada as in best interest of the child, depending on the current parenting situation and what sort of parenting uh, this listener has, uh, it would be worth bringing it back to court before any moves or anything happens, um, depending on the individual factors and the structure of the current parenting order. I'd be really surprised if the initial parenting order was made primarily on the mother's employment status. It seems unusual, highly unusual. That's something um, you don't see. That would be one of many factors, I would think, that the court would take into consideration when deciding what is in this child's best interest, respecting where the child should be between mom and dad. So... Whether she was lying about being in the military or not, um, it may or may not be a hill to die on in terms of bringing this back to court. So I think that really needs to be thought about. Did the court really care that much that she was in the military when making that decision? Get, a, right, transcript. get a transcript. Yeah. Think that through. And what I would say is, particularly on that issue of setting aside an order uh, because there may have been a misapprehension of fact, that's pretty complex. It's not something I would recommend someone does on their own. Um, I've only ever done one of those, not not related to a potential lying under oath piece, but, um, and it's really, it was technical. It was tough. So I don't think this is something that uh, the listener should pursue on their own. They should at least get some legal advice before doing it. Um. All right. We have a question here, Rob, you've read through this uh, in a little more depth than I have. So do, do you want to articulate what this question, uh, what this listener is uh, asking in their question? We have a listener out of Ontario who is concerned about her stepson. Um, so her husband had full custody and full decision making, um, but his ex who has an extensive history of supervised visits and so potentially some past drug use uh, and other abuse. There is a concern uh, that the ex will receive more parenting time with the son and is talking about taking the child in a homemade cargo van uh, to travel across the country. Uh, and they're concerned about the ex potentially getting more parenting time, but also having the opportunity to travel across the country uh, in um, a homemade van that may or may not be safe. Uh, and they're concerned about 
how the access or any of those things could happen if this person's moving across the country or in the process of traveling across the country. So the listener's been the primary parent. The other individual that has some access now, but maybe getting more access, wants to extensively travel across the country with the son in a homemade cargo van. And they're also particularly concerned here about the winter and what that would look like. What's your view, Darren? I think my view is how can the child travel across the country they 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 need to go to school somewhere unless they're being homeschooled i suppose but um it's not possible for a minor child to have uh an undetermined amount of time on vacation traveling across the country that's just i don't think that's possible um i think if there is an existing order in place regarding the parenting time then that stands until the parent wanting to travel across the country in a cargo van brings an application to vary that order. At minimum, there's some sort of status quo parenting arrangement in place, and I still think it would be incumbent upon that parent under Ontario family law legislation, or if these are married folks that have gone through a divorce under the Divorce Act, that the parent wanting to travel with the child would have to disturb that status quo by bringing an application in court to say, I now want permission from the court to travel with this child across the, however far they're going across the country or wherever. And I, I don't know, I just call me old school, but it doesn't seem like something that would be in this child's best interest, despite even the child perhaps wanting to do it. That would seem like kind of a fun adventure at first instance, but uh, particularly to a child. Um, but it just doesn't seem feasible. And it seems like this listener would um, probably succeed if the other parent was to bring an application in court saying, I do want this parenting time and I want to travel around with the child during the school year. I don't know. I just don't think that's going to happen. So what do you think, Rob? I completely agree. I think logistically this would be very challenging, particularly if there is some history of supervised parenting, drug abuse, and other things on the parent that now wants to travel with the child. Uh, a court would look at that really closely and make any decision in the best interest of that child. And number one, you hit the nail on the head, Darren. Uh, kids have to go to school and there's an existing parenting regime in place. Uh, any lawyer talking to this other party who says, great, I want to make an application to just travel with my child all year long, they're going to say super. Let's say you're in a week-on, week-off parenting regime, or so, even if it's less than that, whatever that parenting time looks like, how are you going to make sure that that other parent gets all the parenting time they have now, in addition to making sure that child continues to go to school or become educated? That's not a decision this one parent can make unilaterally. And if there's been extensive court history, I definitely, it sounds like this will be an uphill battle for the individual looking to travel with the child. All right, let's go to our next question. Uh, this listener has a question about inheritance and inheritance they are potentially going to receive. Um, so she says, if, uh, if someone's supposed to be getting an inheritance when they turn 25, but didn't have full access to it until that time, uh, can that money be used to offset their financial sheet? I'm not sure what that means. Uh, the interesting part of this question is what if the money was traceable, but put into a joint bank account commingled during the course of a marriage? Uh, some of the money was used for a matrimonial home and much of the other money was on general expenses and items throughout the marriage. 
there is no money left to this inheritance anymore. Ultimately, when it comes to division of assets, the exemption is being used to offset the end result and make it look like the party had lost out at the end of the marriage and would be in the negative. Um, so this is really about the use of inheritance money on jointly owned property. Um, what, what are your thoughts, Rob? So I'm clear because the beginning of the question talks about a trust. So this money has already been received from the trust for the estate. Uh, there is no trust. It says if someone's supposed to be getting an inheritance when they turn 25. So it's already been received. Un unclear. It, this looks like there's a condition in the deceased will that says the beneficiary will receive X number of dollars when they turn 25. Yeah. So generally the way we treat inheritance, unless you, as Darren has suggested in previous episodes, take in that money and put it into joint names, put it into the home, um, done something with it to take away its distinct nature. So if you inherit money, put it in a separate account, even though you're married, and you can point at that and say, that's my inheritance. That's generally a pretty clear exemption uh, in most of Canada, if not all of Canada. Once the moment you put it into joint names, put it into a house, you lose either some or all of that exemption and it just becomes matrimonial property. So assuming that's what's happened here and there's been some blending of those assets and it's not clearly traceable where that's gone or it's been put into joint names, that very well may be lost. What's your view? So I view it as a two-step process. So the dumping of an inheritance which would otherwise not be family property or marital property into a joint bank account or invested into a jointly owned asset like a house by paying down a mortgage or something um, it very well likely would lose its exempt status so that's step one step two would be now that the marriage is over should your property be divided equally uh, which all provinces have uh language in whatever the provincial statute is that would allow a court to unequally divide family property. So I just, I just did a TikTok about this. Uh, there's a case out of BC, uh, it's called Venables versus Venables. It's a 2019 decision of our court of appeal where basically the husband had dumped a bunch of nor what would normally be exempt property into jointly owned bank accounts and added his wife to the title of a home that he owned prior to marriage. Then the marriage broke down after about eight years and the court said, yes, those, the, those things that were exempt that you put into jointly owned names uh, lost their exempt status. But then the next step would be, well, should we divide all of this equally? And the court of appeal said, no, it agreed with the trial judge and said there should be an unequal division in favor of the husband because of things like the rather short duration of the marriage and the nominal contribution of the wife to uh, really the financial over, overall financial state of the marriage is that it would be unfair to divide it equally. So he got about two-thirds of the net value of the estate of the, all, all of the family property, and she got about a third. So, I mean, that's a province-specific thing, but just because you dump something into joint names doesn't end the analysis. You can always ask for an unequal division of it on the back end. Great answer. Thank you. Okay. Uh, our next question is someone who says, I have a complicated family issue and I'm so stuck. I don't know what to do. She says, she emailed us and that's a really good start and listens to the podcast. Yeah. 
Uh, my ex and I separated October 2020. He moved out of the home November 2020. We share, we share an 11-year-old daughter with complications. She has ADHD, ODD. I'm not certain what that is. Uh, anxiety and complex emotional regulation issues. Uh, she says, I've tried my best to be amicable, but he decided he wanted um, to commit suicide in the garage at the family home and was enraged when I called the RCMP. He survived that. I'm not certain what occurred there. Obviously, that's quite traumatic. Uh, she says a protection order was granted in February 2021, obviously arising out of whatever occurred in the family garage. It was extended through to November of 2021. The master initially ordered supervised visits, which occurred until May of 2021 but when we appeared again because uh no first case conference had occurred this uh, is bc matter jcc judicial case conference uh the master canceled the supervision uh, a consent order was made may 6 2021 which addressed conduct uh, how the parties would exchange communications etc and set access at saturdays and any other days agreed on um so she says her ex is only allowed to email or text for the purpose of arranging visits with their daughter. Um, but she says that he has breached the protection order that was in place and conduct order by repeatedly, uh, repeatedly, but uh, her current counsel said it's not really worth doing anything about and that a case needs to be built. Uh, she says he has a lawyer who refuses to engage uh, since February uh, she sent three letters. My lawyer requested since March that the balance of my ex's personal items be removed, and we arranged JCC to deal with all of that. They're refusing to remove personal items from the house, blah, blah, blah. She goes on to state, uh, recently in the third letter received by my lawyer, they say he will not be buying my home out, and she needs to sell her house. Basically, there's a mixed bag of stuff going on. The separation occurred in the fall. And there's been a protection order. There's been family violence of sorts through this suicide attempt, breaches of a protection order and a conduct order about how the parties will communicate and that um, the listener now wants to sell the house, but that there's some delay on that from the opposing party, her ex and the other lawyer. Basically, it's just, you know, sort of things are all up in the air at this point on this matter um, and just sort of asking for our thoughts. So, uh, Rob, what what are your what's your take on this? It's really important that the listener, as everybody, when you think about your issues in your divorce, you think about them in order. So number one, separate and apart. Number two, parenting. And this is clearly a parenting issue. Um, you're in case conferences, you're already in our courts. So courts should be aware of the fact around dad's mental health and any con continuing conditions there. My chief concern would be with these reviews that are back before the court. Uh, what sort of psychological evaluations has he had? And what is dad's current condition? What, how does he have that current potentially unsupervised parenting if there was a concern in the past, unless that concern has been satisfied uh, by psychologist intervention or whatever course of treatment he is doing that some professional other than just a lawyer has said that he's okay to be a parent. So that's number one. And that's my chief concern. After that, uh, the listener can then perhaps turn her mind to issues of property and other pieces. 
uh, she mentions a house. I'd want to know, um, particularly if dad has had this history of mental health issues, what his finances are like, that both the parties have exchanged complete and full disclosure. Maybe she should be receiving child support or potentially spousal support if he's working because this uh, mental health issues may not be working. So those may or may not be um, totally productive avenues at this time. But only after that parenting piece is satisfied, then I suppose you can look at the property piece. But I only want to look at that in tandem with everything else. Um, selling the house alone in a vacuum, uh, that's okay, as we've addressed in previous episodes, taking advantage of our rising housing market. If you want to maximize the value of a house, so be it. Um, but be wary that if you sell the house now or get either by court order or by consent, that those proceeds are likely to be held in trust, meaning held by a lawyer, um, until all of your issues are resolved, or at least all of your property issues are resolved. And we strongly recommend that people don't start thinking about property or other pieces until those parenting pieces are resolved up front. And given the traumatic pieces that happened last fall, that's likely a continuing concern for this listener. And I'd also suggest it sounds like she's only um, just shy of a year into this process, given the dramatic pieces that happened on the parenting. This file may move to conclusion quickly, or it may not. And as we've talked about before, wrapping up any divorce inside of a year is always a really good timeline. So this is more likely a two-year process. And I'd want to know first and foremost that your children are okay and what dad's parenting time looks like. What are your thoughts, Darren? I agree with the la- I agree with everything, but I, I really want to hit on the last point you mentioned, which is that these folks haven't been separated a year. Um, they're married, so they're heading towards a divorce at some point you can't get that divorce till you've lived separate and apart for a year at minimum and you're not going to likely be able to shore up the parenting issue anytime soon and that's not to scare you the listener but the issue of your ex's mental stability or lack thereof is fluid and that's that in and of itself will make this matter proceed much longer than you likely want And the essence I'm getting from the question is that there are so many things you want to resolve right now and you want them resolved very quickly. That's likely to not happen. And it's not going to happen because of your ex's mental state at this point. It's going to be very difficult for a court to, even if you want to go to court to get an interim parenting order, which you've done to some extent, but it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to keep going back for interim orders you probably need some expert evidence about your child, uh, if they're old enough, what they prefer, uh, as well as interviewing both you and your ex. That would be in BC what we call a Section 211 report. And that's going to take some time. I'd be really surprised if this whole thing was solved within two years. I think this is going to take some time. And the more... Um, you can see it as a step-by-step process instead of we need to resolve everything immediately. Um, I think the more mentally sound you're going to be able to move yourself, you know, move yourself forward effectively mentally um, because it is just going to take some time and that's just the reality of it. So hopefully that, um, hopefully that helps to some extent, but um, yeah, I think that's uh, that's pretty good for listener questions today, Rob. So 
Well, we wish her well. And Darren Schmidt, thank you for being with me. Uh, we enjoyed all the questions we received. As always, you can send them to lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com and find us online at divorcedanddone.com. Thank you for being with us. We look forward to joining you again. 